Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Friday, February 3rd, 2023. All right, so the first story at the top of Antiwar.com is... uh, I think, uh, you know, maybe some good news for a change here. More Americans say that the U.S. gives Ukraine too much. So this is from Kyle Anzalone and Connor Freeman. As the war in Ukraine nears the end of its first year, Americans are starting to believe that Washington is sending too much support to Kiev. Pew Research conducted a poll in January and found that the number of Republicans that are opposed to the current level of support for Ukraine is now at 40%. The U.S. has pledged well over $100 billion in aid to Kiev, mostly in arms and military equipment. In March 2022, so this is reflecting, uh, comparing between numbers of a poll that was just taken and one that was taken back in March 2022, So back then, Pew reported that 49% of Republican voters believed the U.S. was not giving enough aid to Ukraine, and only 9% responded that Washington was sending too much support to Kiev. And these numbers have now nearly reversed, with 40% saying that there's too much support, and only 17% say the Biden administration is not doing enough. Democratic voters have had a far slower but similar trend. In the early months of the war, only 5% of blue voters believed Washington was sending too much aid. That number has grown to 15%. However, Pew's poll conducted in 2023 found nearly a quarter of Democrats want the White House to more uh, to do more. Sorry, they want the U.S. to do more to support Ukraine. And the Pew results reflect polls conducted by Morning Consult and Concerned Veterans for America that were conducted. Uh, In September, those surveys found a growing number of Americans opposed to giving more aid to Ukraine, led by Republican voters. So the difference between Republicans and Democrats is pretty, pretty huge here, uh, and it's pretty significant. Um, And in the opening months of the war, they just explained how the U.S. refused to provide Ukraine with more advanced equipment. And now, you know, everything is changing as the U.S., is sending uh, Abrams tanks, and there's going to be some longer-range missiles coming down the pipe very soon. That's expected to be announced sometime on Friday. Um, And all these steps are risking direct war with Moscow. And I think over the past year, just again, as this thing has dragged on, and Republican voters and and other Americans have just seen Zelensky always going on TV, going to the Golden Globes and speaking in front of of Congress. I think a lot of people are just kind of getting sick of it. Um, So... Just interesting numbers here. And then the next article, the Pentagon says that Ukraine is unlikely to retake Crimea. So this is more, I went over yesterday how there's reports that U.S. officials don't think Ukraine can take Crimea. And here's more on that. Senior Pentagon officials told lawmakers in the House Armed Services Committee last week in a classified briefing that Ukraine is unlikely to retake Crimea from Russia. This was according to a report from Politico, citing people familiar with the briefing. So the briefing reflects other recent reporting that said U.S. officials don't think Ukraine has the capability to take the peninsula, which Russia Russia has controlled since 2014. 
Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, he said back in November that the probability of Ukraine kicking Russia out of all the the territory it's captured since February, since last February, it's February now. Uh, So all the territory they've captured since this invasion and, and capturing Crimea, he said the probability of that is not high. And he just reiterated this point on January 20th during the meeting in uh, Germany of military leaders, what they call the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. Milley said, quote, I still maintain that for this year, it would be very, very difficult to militarily eject the Russian forces from all every inch of Ukraine and occupied or Russian occupied Ukraine, end quote. So kind of jumbled it up there. Uh, According to the Politico report, the Ukrainian government was furious with Milley's comments. Ukrainian officials maintain that kicking Russia out of Crimea is still one of their war goals, although Ukraine is beginning to lose more territory in its battle against Russian forces in the east. Now, very interesting from this article, um, and I found this thanks to, I saw Dan McAdams and Ron Paul talking about on the Liberty Report. I actually missed this. This was from uh, Wednesday, I think, this article. Uh, But anyway, Representative Mike Rogers, he is a Republican from Alabama. He's the head of the House Armed Services Committee. He said some interesting things uh, in this Politico report. So he declined to discuss the contents of the briefing that his panel received on Crimea, but he did signal that the U.S. might be looking to wind the war down. Uh, He said that the war needs to end this summer and said that uh, the U.S. must rapidly supply Kiev for a coming offensive. So, you know, that's not good that he's saying send more and more weapons. But he also indicated that the U.S. might try to put pressure on the government, uh, on the Zelensky government, to have a more realistic idea of victory and said, and he said that Russia is never going to quit and give up Crimea. So he said, quote, what is doable? And I don't think that's agreed upon yet. So I think that there's going to have to be some pressure from our government and NATO leaders with Zelensky about what does victory look like. And I think that's going to help us more than anything be able to drive Putin and Zelensky to the table to end this thing this summer, end quote. So again, interesting to see the head of the House Armed Services Committee, he's receiving these briefings, I think. Him saying something like that is a signal that maybe more of them are starting to realize, all right, you know, we can't keep dragging this thing out. But a lot could happen between now and the summer. And again, they are escalating all this aid. And as they continue to do so, a direct clash between NATO and Russia becomes more likely. And the more they do this, Russia might be more inclined to try to push and gain more territory in response so they might have their own plans that aren't going to align with, you know, the Hawks in Washington who say, all right, maybe we should ease up uh, a few months from now. Um, OK, so the next one here, speaking of Russia wanting to take more territory, Zelensky warns that a major Russian offensive is looming. So Zelensky said on Thursday that Russia is amassing troops and that a major Russian offensive is coming. So he said this alongside uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the uh, EU's European Commission chief. She was in Kiev ahead of the EU summit that's being held Friday. Zelensky said, quote, now Russia is concentrating its forces. We all know that it is preparing to try to take revenge, not only against Ukraine, but against the free Europe and the free world, end quote. 
So a Russian winter offensive has been kind of long expected, long awaited as Moscow has reinforced its position since they mobilized 300,000 fresh troops. Ukrainian Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov, he claimed that the Russian troop buildup is it's more than 300,000. He's saying there's 500,000 troops. He said, quote, officially they announced 300,000, but when we see the troops at the borders, according to our assessments, it is much more, end quote. So while Russia has yet to launch a major offensive, Russian and Ukrainian forces have continued to battle it out in the eastern Donbass region, mainly around the Donetsk city of Bakhmut. That's where a lot of this fighting has been going on. And Russian forces have been making gains around the city. uh, And U.S. and other Western officials have acknowledged that Ukraine has been taking heavy losses in the battle and that Russia will likely take the city. So the narrative, you know, that Ukraine is winning has kind of uh, slowly is slowly fading away from you know the Western media and what comments you're seeing from U.S. and other Western officials, recognizing that Ukraine has has lost a lot in the in these battles, and uh, Russia is starting to to gain territory, and they're not you know really denying that anymore because a few weeks ago. You know, they took this town of Solidar, which is just to the northeast of Bakhmud. And uh, that was about mid-January. Initially, Ukraine, you know, disputed it. But recently, they they admitted that they lost that town. And since then, they've pushed into more areas. And they're beginning to really encircle Bakhmud. And again, this isn't doesn't appear to be their big offensive. Uh, they're still preparing for that. Um and if I were to guess, uh, their their big offensive would still focus on Donetsk because there's still a lot of this oblast that Russia does not control. Uh, if you're watching on the video, this blue area. So that's probably what they're going to focus on. And they've said throughout the war what Russian officials said that they're going to focus on Donbass. And it's important to point out, as I do in this article, that the region of the Donbass has been at war since 2014. Because the U.S.-backed ousting of Yanukovych sparked a Ukrainian civil war. There was a war going on there for years. Uh, killed about 14,000 people, I believe, is the the number. And uh, so it's just that's in a detail that's always left out, you know, of the Western uh, media narrative about this. Uh, okay, where are we here? All right, so the next one. The Pentagon claims that a suspected Chinese spy balloon is floating around over the U.S. So this is very strange. The Pentagon said this on Thursday night. They claimed that they were tracking a spy balloon that has been spotted over the U.S. for several days. And a senior Pentagon official told reporters that the U.S. has high confidence that the surveillance balloon belongs to China. But the claim has not been confirmed and Beijing has yet to respond to the accusation. So like the U.S., China has sophisticated surveillance capabilities that uh, sophisticated satellite capabilities that make deploying something like a spy balloon over U.S. territory uh, kind of redundant. Uh, And this is something that the senior Pentagon official. So there's a briefing that this official gave and, and acknowledged that, you know, something like this wouldn't really give China much of a benefit when it came to surveillance. This official said, quote, first, our best assessment at the moment is that whatever the surveillance payload is on this balloon, it does not create a significant value added over 
and above what China is likely able to collect through things like satellites in low Earth orbit, end quote. <coughs> Excuse me. So, yeah, uh, it's just a strange story. And the Pentagon said that they decided not to shoot down the balloon due to the risk of harming people on the ground. Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder said in a statement that the balloon was currently traveling at an altitude well above commercial air traffic and does not present a military or physical threat to people on the ground. So, of course, you know, there's a lot of Republicans saying, oh, they got to shoot it down. You know, this is showing Biden's weakness, showing that he's owned by the Chinese uh, communists and all that. So it's just a whole weird story. And who knows what to make of this? I do know that we shouldn't just take the Pentagon's word uh, on this one, that China is floating these balloons over the U.S. And they did say that they've tracked similar balloons in recent years. And the senior Pentagon official, the only place that they said the balloon was over at one point was Montana, which is a state that houses nuclear weapons silos. So the claim about the alleged Chinese spy balloon, it comes amid very high tensions with Beijing. And it comes right before Blinken is uh, preparing to visit China, where he's due to arrive, I think, on February 5th. So very soon. That's Sunday. Yeah. And so maybe, I mean, who knows? Now he's going to go over there and everybody's going to be mad at Biden for, for letting this Chinese balloon float around. Um, but it's just a weird story. And again, you know, none, none of this is confirmed. I'm curious to see what China's going to say. And, you know, if we're, we're going to see any kind of reports or leaks about this, kind of disputing this, their narrative here. But it's strange. I know that the U.S. has like launched surveillance balloons before. Um, I think it's something they tried during the Cold War, like way back in the 1950s. Um, but it's just a it's just a weird story because I know like the Open Skies Treaty that the U.S. used to have with Russia it allowed them to fly surveillance planes over each other's territory. Uh, the Trump administration pulled out of it. Russia tried to salvage it when when Biden came in, but they refused to. But but people, arms control experts, kind of said it was kind of obsolete because of satellite imagery and stuff that they don't need to fly planes over each other's territory. Uh, but it was kind of just a trust building thing. But anyway, again, we'll see. I'll update you on this after the weekend and see what everybody's saying. But again, it's just very strange. All right, the next one. So this is about Blinken's trip. This is from the South China Morning Post. And really, it's just about how the U.S. squeezes China on tech and trade and also uh, in their military buildup here ahead of Blinken's visit, citing Chinese analysts. And basically what they're saying, right before he leaves here, the U.S. The US ramped up sanctions on China, I believe with uh, Huawei, the phone and 5G company. They're trying to ban all exports to them. And of course, all the military buildup stuff that I've been going over, you know, on Thursday they announced that they're going to expand their military presence in the Philippines. The Marines just opened a new base in Guam. Uh, the U.S. is signing these deals with the Marshall Islands, Micronesia. They opened this embassy in the Solomon Islands all very recently. You know, this all came right before Blinken is going. So I think it is showing that you know they're not really keen to resolve any issues. And as they put it, I think they kind of put it a little honestly, the Biden administration. They say that these talks, this engagement with China is not is about managing the competition, as they call it. So managing the tensions. It's not about resolving anything. Um, so, but we'll see what comes of Blinken's visit. And we know Blinken's engagement with Russian officials before 
the current war in Ukraine didn't uh, bear any fruit. So I don't have much confidence in him going and really making any deals or really easing tensions with uh, China. But we'll see what happens. I do think, you know, we always got to say uh, talks are good. Diplomacy is good. It should be encouraged. But I just don't have faith in Blinken, who's a total failed diplomat. Uh, for f- just for the fact that he hasn't been talking with Lavrov, you know, this entire time. If you really want to stop a war, you would be trying to do it every way possible, and you know that would be speaking with uh, the the Russians. Um, okay, so the next one here: Iran formally blames blames Israel for drone attack in Isfahan. So Iran on Thursday formally blamed Israel for the weekend drone attack on a military facility in the Iranian city of Isfahan. And this is just a few days after U.S. officials speaking to the media said that Israel was responsible. So in a letter to the U.N. Security Council, Iranian Ambassador Amir Syed Ravani said that he wanted to draw attention to what he called, quote, further instances of the Israeli regime's acts of terrorism and sabotage, as well as violations of international law against the Islamic Republic of Iran. According to the Iranian account, the attack was launched with three micro-aerial vehicles, MAVs as they call them, and these are small quadcopter drones that Israel has employed in attacks against Iran in the past. The letter said that the drones targeted a workshop belonging to the Iranian Defense Ministry and did minor damage after being hit by Iran's air defenses. So the letter mentioned, you know, the threats against Iran that are constantly made by Israeli officials and how Netanyahu did not deny Israel was behind the drone attack in a recent interview with CNN. When he was asked about it, Netanyahu said, quote, I never talk about specific operations. And every time some explosion takes place in the Middle East, Israel is blamed or given responsibility. Sometimes we are, sometimes we are not, end quote. So again, didn't deny it. The letter asked the Security Council to condemn the attack and said that Iran has the right to respond. The letter said, quote, the Islamic Republic of Iran reserves its legitimate and inherent right in accordance with international law and the United Nations Charter to defend its national security and respond resolutely to any threats or wrongful actions by the Israeli regime wherever and whenever deemed necessary, end quote. So the Wall Street Journal first reported that Israel was behind the attack citing unnamed U.S. officials who stressed that it came as the U.S. and Israel were discussing ways to counter Iran's military capabilities. So they were hinting at potential U.S. involvement or coordination or backing. And Iran's permanent mission to the U.N. told Newsweek that if the U.S. is involved in any such attacks on Iran, it means war. Uh, They said, quote, in Iran's perspective, the head of the U.S., Uh, Sorry, uh, in Iran's perspective, the use of the military option at any level means U.S. entry into the war, end quote. Uh, But they did say that for now, they think the possibility that the U.S. was involved is weak, um, which is good. And a Pentagon spokesperson told Newsweek that they could confirm that no U.S. military forces were involved. Uh, But, you know, that that doesn't exclude the CIA. Although, again, you know, we don't know uh, what's happening here. And Iran's not saying that the CIA was involved or that the U.S. was involved. But and I think the U.S., I think they very much coordinate these sort of attacks with Israel a lot of times, although other times they do it 
Uh, you know, last year in spring 2022, Israel launched a bunch of covert attacks and assassinations inside Iran. And it seemed like the U.S. wasn't happy about it, but they didn't actually do anything about it. They, they can't even publicly say, hey, you shouldn't be killing people and blowing things up inside Iran. Uh, that's not cool. Um, so they do tacitly back Israel's operations there. And this did come as William Burns was in uh, Israel, the head of the CIA. That's an important detail. All right, so the next one here, this is from Jason Ditz, and it's a very interesting article about how the U.S. still has a lot, a lot of control over Iraq. Uh, it's titled, Aiming to Harm Iran and Syria, U.S. Federal Reserve Strangles Iraq's Economy. So Iraq's foreign exchange rate has steadily declined over recent years, falling to lows which are severely damaging the Iraqi economy. Ironically, this comes at a time when the foreign reserves meant to back the Iraqi dinar's global position are at a near-time high. So they have a lot of foreign reserves, but their exchange rate is no good. So starting with the 2003 U.S. invasion and occupation, the Central Bank of Iraq has remained closely linked to the U.S. Federal Reserve. This was one of several long-term linkages meant to ensure the U.S. retained a strong sway over the future Iraqi economy to react to any tensions and in the increasingly likely event that the U.S. feels like increased mucking about regionally. The U.S. regime got, its, got it in its head that Syria and Iran were using the relatively free economy of neighboring Iraq for money laundering. And that's not an entirely unre unreasonable suspicion, Jason says, as many Iranians are heavy heavily invested in the Iraqi economy after the damage done to Iran's economy by U.S. sanctions. Trying to rein this in, the U.S. Federal Reserve is keeping a tight grip on the foreign reserves that it holds for Iraq, you know, in quotes there, that it's holding it for Iraq. <laughs> it's holding it so they can control Iraq. But much of the harm done in Iraq directly appears inadvertent and related to general U.S. policy as the Central Bank of Iraq's reserves are not coincidentally mostly U.S. dollars. Most of the world holds the U.S. dollar as a big part of its reserve currency stores, and as a result, the exchange rate with U.S. dollars is an important measure of the health of any given currency. Exchange rate ought to track closely what the reserves, with the reserves backing it, and in most places in the world, it does indeed even out to that. But not so much for Iraq. So the Federal Reserve's own data shows that Iraq's reserves are surging to a multi-decade high. And it makes sense because the Ukraine war is driving up uh, the price of oil and Iraq's exports are bringing in a lot of cash, even if that cash ends up in the U.S. and is not particularly accessible. Under ordinary conditions, Iraq's central bank would strengthen the dinar by selling some of its U.S. dollars to Iraqi financial institutions. Concerns for money laundering make, make this a slow process and few are willing to exchange their dollars for dinars, knowing how hard it can be to exchange them back. This is making trade with the U.S. difficult and growing Iraq's infrastructure all but impossible. Uh, so Iraq's sending a team of diplomats to the U.S. to try to negotiate more of an open policy. And it's and it's a, not an easy task, as Jason says, uh, but this is just a really interesting way, again, that the U.S. controls Iraq. And it gives you an idea into why these Iraqi prime ministers are keeping the U.S. you know around, why why they're allowing them to have keep troops in the country, even though so many people are against the U.S. presence. Uh, and it gives you another reason to hate the Federal Reserve. Uh, 
All right, so the last news article here, North Korea warns of toughest reaction to bigger U.S.-South Korea drills. So North Korea on Thursday responded to the U.S. and South Korea announcing they would be expanding joint military exercises, warning that the steps are pushing toward an extremist red line and will provoke the toughest reaction. So a spokesperson for North Korea's foreign ministry said in a statement, quote, the military and political situation in the Korean peninsula and the region has reached an extremely dangerous phase due to the reckless military confrontations and hostile acts of the U.S. and its vassal forces, end quote. On top of increasing the size of upcoming military drills, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said that the U.S. will deploy more strategic assets to the Korean peninsula, including bombers and fighter jets. The statement said, quote, if the U.S. continues to introduce strategic assets into the Korean peninsula and its surrounding areas, the DPRK, that's the uh, Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which is North Korea, they will make clear its deterring activities without fail according to their nature, end quote. Pyongyang said that it would respond under the principle of nuke for nuke and an all-out confrontation for all-out confrontation. So in this, all these tensions come after 2022. North Korea launched a record number of missile tests, and South Korea began holding large-scale joint exercises with the U.S. for the first time since 2017. Again, the tit-for-tat escalations here. The Biden administration shows no sign of fostering diplomacy. Uh, and this is where we're at. You know, the White House p- put out a statement insisting that, oh, yeah, we want to talk to North Korea. But as long as they're doing this, it's not going to happen. They have to freeze. They have to stop. Think about what they're doing for a second uh, and try to try to engage them and offer them something. A little sanctions relief. Or right now, they could probably just offer a pause of these war games. Um, but that's it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Ted Snyder, fact-checking Zelensky on non-alignment. Uh, one from Chris Hedges over at his Substack, Ukraine. I think it's Substack. Yeah, the war that went wrong. Ramsey Baroud, Palestinians are not liars, confronting the violence of media delegitimization. Go check that out. And James R. Webb, Iraq, Afghanistan, provide lessons on U.S. weapons flows. This is over at Responsible Statecraft. And then our spotlight is from Caitlin Johnstone. The mass media once told the truth about Ukraine. This is over at her website or her Substack, um, And it's basically about the things that the, the Western media used to report on in Ukraine that they don't report on anymore. Uh, so, but anyway... That's it for me for today. Uh, that's it for the week. Um, again, you could always support us at antiwar.com slash donate. Uh, like and subscribe to the show on YouTube, Odyssey and Rumble, all that. Um, that's it. I hope you didn't mind my sniffling and everything. I'm still pretty sick, but you know we got through it. And uh, I'll talk to you after the weekend. Thanks for listening.